Hello and welcome to another Maramara Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. First sermon of the new year. So the one that sets the foundation of everything else that happens this year. The one that shines the path on the light on the pathway that we're heading down. Or Declan knew that everyone was going to be out at the beach and that uh, everyone here was so tired from Christmas and New Year that they're probably going to fall asleep anyway. Um, So we'll see how we go. This time last year we did a series called Walk in Him and we covered some of the basic tenets of our Christian faith like um, prayer, um, the Bible, Uh, faith, communion, giving, and I felt this morning that I wanted to pick up on that with one more um, tenant of our faith, that uh, a word that we come across quite regularly, particularly if you're reading Paul's uh, um, writings, um, the word reconciliation. So um, back in the day, um, before modern technology made them obsolete, we used to use something called a checkbook. And um, if you didn't have cash in hand, then you took out your checkbook, you wrote someone's name on it, wrote the amount of money, um, gave it to them, they accepted it as payment and they took it to the bank and um, handed it over to the teller, the teller checked your account to see if there was enough money in the account to cover the check, and if there was they gave that money to the person that had your cheque, and if there wasn't, then the cheque bounced. It was a system that worked well as long as you had enough money in your account. But to prevent the bouncing cheque syndrome, you used to make a note in a ledger each time you wrote out a cheque, each time you deposited some money, You kept a running tally and at the end of each month the bank then sent you a statement and you compared the statement with what your ledger said. And if it was wrong, which sometimes it was, you knew that it was your fault. It was never the bank's fault. You run the numbers again, you check your maths, you check that all the figures you've written down were right and you correct the total, you reconciled your account. And I guess there were a few people out there that went, it's only a couple of cents out or a couple of dollars out, doesn't really matter. Um, Near enough is good enough. I wasn't one of them. I had to find the mistake and correct it before I could move on for the month. Now, (coughs) I pull out my phone every morning, open up the app. Yes, I spent $30 at New World yesterday. Yes, I spent $50 on petrol. Yes, Winston has paid me. I, I don't need to reconcile my account at the end of each month but because I do it daily. And I guess that's easier. <clears throat> so when we find the term reconciliation in the scriptures, does it have the same meaning? Or is, there something in, is it something different? Is there something in a financial reconciliation that helps us understand biblical reconciliation? In Romans 5, we find it says, 
For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When we look at the balance of our life, what we want to be able to do is achieve eternal life. But do we have enough in the account to pay for that goal? Can we write that check? The simple answer is no, we do not. The scriptures tell us in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. And by death it means eternal separation from God in the same way that eternal life means being in his presence for eternity. Romans 3.21 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we have all sinned and the cost of sin is eternal separation from God, then our account with God is out of balance. We can't afford what we want to buy. When we were out of balance with the bank, we were required to pay the difference, to make ourselves reconciled. Can we do the same here? Can we do enough good deeds to lift our balance? The scriptures again give us the answer. In Isaiah 64, 6 we read, All of us, Sorry, all of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even what we determine as righteous acts are as filthy rags to God. We can do nothing to address the imbalance in our account. It is God Himself who must add to our account if we are to avoid eternal death. So we recognize the gap. Is the gap is there, and that we are not able to bridge it. And then God steps in and says, I will cover the, dis the difference. God himself will balance the account for us. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God offers his son to pay the price, but we need to recognize the size of that sacrifice. It wasn't a case of, I need to pay this debt for you, but the only thing I have for my son, can you do change? The debt required the fullness of God dwelling in him. That is where we come unstuck if we do not see Jesus for who he is. If we see Jesus as a man who had some good teaching, a prophet, even a healer, that Jesus 
does not have enough value invested in him to pay the cost. He falls short of paying our debt. It required the Jesus of Colossians 1 to pay our debt, to balance our account with God. So now we are reconciled with God. But does reconciliation go beyond that? Can we take reconciliation out on the horizontal? What about between nations? In Ephesians 2 we read, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, any Jewish people here in the congregation today? No, that's what I thought. You're all Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. So Paul tells us what was achieved at the cross. But is this what the early church was experiencing? When we read the story in Acts 10, and I haven't put Acts 10 up because it would just be too much to read. Um, you're just going to have to go home and read Acts 10. In fact, 10 and 11 cover the same um, story, so you'll probably have to read both those chapters to get the, um, the full story. But when we read in the story of Acts 10, we see the Apostle Peter. He's up on the roof just before lunch praying. This is 10 years after Jesus' death. The church has been in existence for 10 years. In a vision, Peter sees and hears God, and a sheet drops down filled with all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And God says to Peter, kill and eat. Peter refuses. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now we know where God is going with this, but let's stick with the text so far. What is Peter saying? He is saying, I am a righteous Jew and I obey the commands and law and regulations. Some men then turn up at the gate and ask Peter to come with them to see Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And because God has already told Peter that this is going to happen, he goes with them. And once Peter joins the gathering at Cornelius' house, his first statement is, you are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile and visit him. What law? That isn't in the law of Moses. That's just part of the body of regulations that the Jewish leaders impose on the Jewish people. 
And yet that's the first thing that Peter points out to them. I am not supposed to be here. Ten years on from the establishment of the church and the apostles won't associate with Gentiles. Jesus had come and died, the Jewish Messiah, the one who came to save Israel, all of the people saved at Pentecost, Jewish. From a, for a Gentile to receive Jesus as saviour, he had to first become a proselyte of the Jewish religion. He had to obey the law of Moses and all the other rules and regulations. The Ethiopian eunuch in uh, chapter 8 of Acts was a proselyte. He was coming back from worshipping at the temple. The Samaritans in chapter 8 aren't Jews, but they serve the same God, Jehovah. They obey the law of Moses. The Jews probably weren't happy about them becoming Christians, and you just have to read some of the accounts in the Gospels of how the uh, disciples felt against about the Samaritans. But Gentiles? No way. But Peter was now faced with that very issue. He shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they start speaking in tongues and praising God. The last recorded time that had happened was at Pentecost. And Peter had explained to the audience that it was a sign from God that he was pouring out his spirit. Peter and those who had gone with him are forced to accept the fact that God was accepting Gentiles as they were. They didn't have to become proselytes. He had provided reconciliation for both people groups. Now even just a casual reading of Paul's writings will show us that that revelation took some time to establish itself in the church. He had to keep telling the Jewish church leaders that the new Gentile Christians didn't have to obey the law of Moses, didn't need to be circumcised. But over a period of time, the church became both Jew and Gentile, reconciled, as Ephesians 2 told us, that was God's intention. It didn't last long. Within a short time, the Gentile church began to talk about our saviour, the one who come to save us, his people. And those Jews, they killed him. The Gentile church began to persecute the Jewish church. They had to go underground. The Western nations often encouraged by the church, dominated the Middle East over the next 2,000 years. I was going to say it culminated in what happened during World War II, but culminated is probably the wrong word when we consider the outrage that is expressed by the world every time Israel pops its head up. The Jews are still a persecuted people. It is not hard to find churches today that believe that God is finished with Israel, they had their chance, and now all the promises of God belong to the Gentile church. We see no reconciliation between Jew and Gentile like Ephesians 2 told us about. And I believe we're going to have to address that issue before the Lord returns. But maybe we need to address the issue of the last area of reconciliation first, the one-on-one -on -one reconciliation between individuals. How are you doing with your relationships 
with the people we know? Has the preacher said something that offended you? Did the greeter on the door talk to someone else too long and ignore you? Simple things that get under your skin. Maybe it's your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your boss. All the people we know have the potential to irritate or offend us. Does that affect our relationships? Do we continue to carry those niggles, whether large or small, into our ongoing contact? Is there tension? How does reconciliation work in those relationships? Is there an imbalance? Who is going to pay the cost to restore it? We talked about the bank balance being our responsibility to pay the cost to restore balance, to reconcile. We talked about God paying the price to restore us to him. But what about our relationships with one another? Who's going to pay the cost for that? I'm sure you all have an opinion on who has to pay the cost to reconcile the difference we have with one another. And it's more likely them. They are in the wrong. Let them pay. I want to suggest that there is no cost to pay because there is no imbalance. We are already reconciled. Not because someone has already paid the price, because there is no price to pay. When we came into a relationship with Jesus at the foot of the cross, we have all been there and we stay there. That is level ground for us all. When we have realized that our true sin nature, what our true sin nature is like at the foot of the cross, we have no right to hold anyone else to account for their sin nature. We are all on the same level. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. To some who were confident of their righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Our righteousness is a gift from God and not something we can use to puff ourselves up. We need to be humble and approach our relationships with others through that humility from the foot of the cross. In Matthew 18, we read, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I'm sure Peter thought that seven times was more than enough, probably extravagantly so. But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 
Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That first servant is us. We have come before God with a massive debt. We are unable to pay, and because we have asked for forgiveness, that debt has been covered by God. But when we come across someone that has a small debt to us, what is our response? God expects us to forgive that debt we are owed, and we have, as we have had our debt forgiven. If someone has offended or hurt us, we are not able to expect them to pay to reconcile our relationship. In Matthew 8, we have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus tells the religious leaders who had brought her for justice, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Even these self-righteous Pharisees recognized that on that basis, none of them was able to pass judgment. Thanks, Ash. None of them was able to pass judgment on her. They had all sinned. Occasionally, I come across a testimony of someone who has lived a life of reconciliation. I think of Corrie Ten Boom, who was put into a German prisoner of war camp because she and her family were helping others try to escape the Germans. She was the only member of her family to survive the atrocities they endured. But after the war was over, God called her to go back to Germany and minister love and forgiveness to the very people who had abused her. Another story is told in the book Unbroken. It is a story of Louis Zamperini, an American pilot who ended up in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Again, his treatment at their hands was atrocious. And after the war, he returned home bitter and broken. He became an alcoholic, but God reached into his life and healed him. He went back to Japan with the same message of forgiveness and reconciliation as Corrie had towards the Germans. These stories stand out as beacons, but they shouldn't. This should be our everyday lives, not something out of the ordinary. Maybe we don't experience the atrocities that they have, but our response to our everyday offences and niggles that we receive should be the same. We should live our lives with no debt owed to us. We should be reconciled with everyone in our life circle. We are reconciled with God 
And so we should behave as if that means something to us. Firstly, our neighbours, and then out into the world. If the church had lived like this for the last 2,000 years, what a different world we might live in today. Maybe we would have turned it upside down. Acts chapter 17 tells us that was the message that was being spoken of the early Christians, those who have turned the world upside down. Father, I want to thank you that um, you've worked in my heart a lot over the preparation of this message. And I pray, Father, that um, those that have heard it today will find something in it that will work in their hearts too. That, Father, your church would turn this world upside down as we were supposed to. That we would be reconciled with each other. That that would be so different that the world would recognise that there's something different about us. And that we might then move out into the world and be reconciled not just with individuals, but the nations might be reconciled because of the work of your church. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to connect with us more, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or you can send us an email through our church website, maramarabaptist.org. See you soon.